Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello. Hello. You're listening to Is It Worth It, the film review podcast, where we're back for season three and we're going to attempt to see almost all the films in the cinema, even the bad ones, so you, the lovely listener, doesn't have to. My name is Craig Fields. And I'm David Long. And Craig, it is fantastic to be back. It is. It's very nice indeed. How are you? I am well. Uh, looking forward to the uh, current heat wave, or the up-and-coming heat wave, I should say. It's going to be 32, 33 degrees here in sunny Hertfordshire. Um, when's that? Well, over the next couple of days. Bank holiday weekend, believe it or not. Oh, really? Yeah, bank hol- August bank holiday is notorious for terrible weather. Everyone has time off work, their family round for barbecues, and it's always terrible. But this August bank holiday, it's going to be sunny, and the BBC is doing their usual overreaction. They've, they've issued weather warnings, health, health warnings and all sorts. I mean, it's 30 degrees, which mainland mm. Europe has for most of the summer, but in Britain, if we get over 30 degrees, out come the health warnings. Or the opposite, when it snows. Oh, yeah, but we can't standstill. deal with the snow. The country comes to a standstill, or if you're on the M25, it's always a standstill. Anyway, yeah. there was a car park the other day. I was on it for nearly six hours. Or just stood still. Well, no, the car wasn't moving. I, I, I actually got out of the yeah, car. Yeah, you weren't standing on the motorway. <laughs> no, I wasn't just standing on the motorway waiting to be, uh, you know, horribly run over. <laughs> but yeah, no, weather's nice. Summer, summer's been good, and it is. I've got to say, it is great to be back, and looking forward to bringing plenty of film reviews to our lovely listeners. Mm. I tell you what, I would like to give a little shout out to someone actually. I didn't know about this, but go ahead, Paul Newbegin. Yes, oh, of course, and Amelia Bakewell. Now. Amelia Newbegin. Yes. Congratulations, both of you, on uh, getting married, mm. essentially. Yes. Uh, Paul Newbegin, the creator and host of The Past podcast, which I believe is now in its last se- season. Yes. Which is a real shame. Uh, Paul's a, a listener of ours. He's also a thoroughly wonderful human being. So, yeah, Paul, many, many congratulations and many years of happiness uh, to you and your w- wonderful new wife. So, coming up on week 33, we're going to be taking a look at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the ninth movie from Quentin Tarantino, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie. Then, the Fast and Furious franchise presents Hobbs and Shaw, starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Jason Statham, Vanessa Kirby and Idris Elba. Next up is John Favreau's reimagination of The Lion King, a hyper-realistic remake with the voices of Donald Glover, Seth Rogen, Beyonce Knowles, John Oliver, James L. Jones and a whole host of other fantastic cast members. We'll then be taking a look at The Sun is Also a Star, directed by Rai Russo-Young, starring Yara Shahidi and Charles Melton. We'll then be heading down the road to Luton with the Bruce Springsteen-inspired Blinded by the Light, uh, directed by Gurinder Chada, starring Vivek Kara, Aaron Faguru and Nikita Mehta. And then Craig will be going hand solo with animals. That does sound wrong, Craig. <laughs> that was a really poor choice um, of words. But yes, Craig will be doing a solo review of Animals directed by Sophie Hyde, starring Holiday Granger and Alelia Shawcat. 
Yes. So that's our uh, uh, films for this week's episode. Um, we'd like to take this opportunity as well to mm. welcome on board the team that we have that's going to help us grow the Is It Worth It podcast. So mm. Alex and Callum are going to be working on everything audio. W- welcome to the team, guys. Welcome. Floss and Johnny are going to be working on crafting our social media. Welcome. Uh, of course, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Toby and Craig are going to be working on everything graphics. Yeah, and well, 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 welcome, Toby. Welcome, welcome, welcome guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we couldn't be happier to have you guys on board. You're a fabulously talented bunch of people. Mm. Uh, and uh, welcome aboard the podcast train. Boop, boop. Next stop, <laughs> the BAFTAs. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope so. That'd yeah, that is the plan. That would be very, very cool. Um, so to you guys, the listeners, um, we'd like to just reach out to you um, just to let you know that we kind of rely on you guys, uh, the kindness of of you guys listening to the podcast, but also we're going to start using something called Patreon. Patreon is a way for uh, our listeners to support the show by donating a sum of money. It could be anything from a pound to whatever you can basically spare. Mm. And in return, we'll offer exclusive support of goodies such as bonus content, early access to episodes, posters, bags. Badges, t-shirts, hoodies, whatever we can make, uh, we will be able to gift to you as a contributor to the podcast. Um, and we're going to be rolling this out fairly soon. Uh, and your support is going to be very much so appreciated. Mm. It does take a lot of time and energy to create this podcast. And for us to be able to continue doing so, um, we're going to rely, rely on your support uh, and we'll be able to make this podcast for years and years to come. Yes, and I, I'd just like to make it clear, it's not about me and Craig making money, making profit. Everything that is coming into the podcast is going to be used to, to continue the podcast going out so you, the listener, know what is worth seeing uh, in the cinema. Uh, we will be seeing the bad films, so you don't have to. Yeah. Uh, also, I just want to. I just realised that I said to Paul, "Congratulations to you and your lovely new wife." I just like to clarify that Paul Newbegin didn't have an old wife. He hasn't. <laughs> he hasn't disposed of his old wife. She hasn't deceased. It is this is his first wife? He's not Henry VIII. I, I just like to clarify that, Paul. I apologise for my buffoonery, and, and once again, congratulations. Anyway, enough of this tomfoolery. It's, time, move on. it's time for the box office rundown. This is the Box Office Rundown. Brought to you by Is It Worth It? The Film Review Podcast. Yes, that's right. It's the Box Office Rundown for the 16th to the 18th of August 2019. And we're going to kick off at number 10. Uh, So at number 10, we have Casino Royale. How is this back in that top 10? It's been released many years ago. Well, it's the secret cinema screenings. And if you've not heard of what the secret uh, cinema is, it's this uh, version of the uh, certain films that they do uh, that they put on a very special screening of it. You dress up. uh, There's lots of different things that go on. um, And it's a very engaging version of the film. uh, And tickets sell for around about £50, if not more, which is why it's probably in our top 10. Uh, There's not going to be... The same amount of people going to see it, but obviously the ticket prices pushes it up into the box office and for the box office for that weekend. Yeah, 
uh, deserves to be in at number 10, even though it came out many, many years ago. One of my favourite Bond films mm, uh, of, of, of all time, actually. I think Daniel Craig just gives a... Re- I think he's a brilliant Bond, but this particular film is one of my go-to Bond films. And if you haven't seen it, I would thoroughly, thoroughly recommend you do. In at number nine, we have... Spider-Man Far From Home. Now, the podcast was on a break when this film came out, so we haven't reviewed it, but I can tell you now, I can't speak for Craig, but I personally really, really enjoyed this film. Uh, The pace was spot on, the acting was great, the plot was really good, Jake Gyllenhaal was great. Um, And, yeah, a lot of nice mentions, and Tony Stark has a a major theme throughout the film. Uh, Really, really enjoyable. Uh, I don't think it's... Is it still still out at the cinema? Yeah, I think they're still doing a a few screenings. I do believe they're going to be doing an extended cut release as well into the cinema uh, for about one week only. Uh, The problem that we have with this film now Mm. is that the Sony and Marvel or Disney partnership has fallen apart completely, which is quite big news, really, Mm. uh, which will see uh, Spider-Man no longer being part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, and I think it's, it's on the back of Disney's greed for uh, having more uh, money uh, from the box office sales because uh, before the deal was that they got 5% of uh, any box office sales uh, and now they want 50%. Sony are not very happy with that and mm. the deal has completely fallen through from that. Yeah, and I think, well, I mean, we're reviewing Lion King on today's show, so we will, well, I will be slightly touching upon Disney's greed uh, later in the show <laughs> today. Craig, what do we have at number eight? So at number eight, we have the Angry Birds movie two. Uh, mm. We haven't seen this. I don't think we're going to see this. I don't this. think we will be seeing this. The question is, why are these birds so angry and why haven't they been given the help that they need? <laughs> Did I ever tell you when I was young, I was referred to anger management? No, you Did I tell that. you the outcome of said anger management? Is it to play Angry Birds? No. I travelled all the way to Hatfield on the bus. It took me two and a half hours. If, you, if you're from the local area, Hatfield is really difficult to get to on public transport. Uh, I was quite angry when I arrived, to the extent that I was told by said councillor that I was too angry for anger management, that I needed to go away and reflect and then come back in a few years when I'd calmed down a bit. A few years? Genuine, true story. Anyway... Angry Birds Movie 2. If you've seen this film, write us an email, drop us a review, and we'll happily read it out on the show. Yes. In at number seven, we have Blinded by the Light. We won't say too much about that because we're reviewing it on today's show. Mm. In at number six, then, we have Good Boys. Uh, We're going to be reviewing that next week, so we probably won't say much about that either. No, we won't. We've both seen it. Uh, In at number five, we have Toy Story 4. Now... Uh, I'm going to try and keep this as brief as possible. For me, it was it was everything you'd expect from a Toy Story film, and f- fundamentally, it was a very well made film, a very enjoyable film. But I didn't really like it for the simple reason that I felt like they'd closed the book with Toy Story 3. I thought it was a brilliant ending. They've now reopened the book, but they've reopened it in such a way that. It, it hasn't been shut again. Um, I had real issues with the character development of Buzz and Woody. They didn't seem like the Buzz and Woody that I'd grown up with. Um, and to me, I'm hoping and praying they make a Toy Story 5, because if Toy Story 4 is the end of this incredible journey that we've been on with these wonderful toys, I think it's a disappointing ending. I'm not saying it's a bad film, but it's just not as good as the other three Toy Stories. Yeah, in my summary, it's uh, it's basically the fourth film that we never thought that we needed on the back of a, a trilogy that were very, very good. And as mm. you said, the third one did close the book quite considerably and then somehow it's been reopened with number four. And I think they did very well with it. Uh, I do agree with your analysis of uh, Buzz and Woody, uh, but nonetheless, I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. 
Uh, in at number four, we have Dora and the Lost City of Gold. Now, we're not going to go into too much detail about this, but we have seen it. It's going to mm. be on next week's show, and it's very surprising, I think. Can we say a little bit? Go on, then. I just want to say that we've both seen this, and it's in at number four, and I think it deserves to be in at number four. And even before our full review, I would thoroughly recommend going to see this film. Definitely take your kids. I think you'll be surprised at our review from it. I don't want to say too much, but if you're thinking, should I or shouldn't I, the answer is you should. Go and see it. Yeah, and then let us know what you thought. Indeed. Uh, In at number three, we have Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw. Again, I shall not say too much about it because you will hear about it very, very shortly on this show. Yep. And in in at number two, we have The Lion King. Again, something we're (laughs) going to be reviewing on today's show, so we won't say anything else about it. And at the top of the pile, and it will be our first review on this week's show, is the fabulous Quentin Tarantino with his ninth film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So, David, would you like to give us the box office rundown from 10 to 1? Yes. In at number 10, we have Casino Royale. 9, Spider-Man Far From Home. 8, The Angry Birds Movie 2. 7, Blinded by the Light. 6, Good Boys. 5, Toy Story 4. At number 4, it's Door of the Lost City of Gold. 3, Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw. At 2, The Lion King. And at the top of the pile, it's Quentin Tarantino with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So our first review on this week's show is Quentin Tarantino's ninth movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and it sends us back in time to 1969, to the end of the golden age of Hollywood. It sees TV actor Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and his stunt double Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt, navigate Hollywood and an industry no longer recognisable to the pair. With multiple storylines, subplots and a huge ensemble cast, Tarantino may have his love letter to Hollywood signed, sealed and delivered. Let's take a listen to a clip. Hey, Randy. <laughs> well, so you're still the wreck, huh? Still here. You in there? Yeah, just knock. Just, just look, just, just, just put them in the wardrobe, all right? What's it gonna hurt? Then if you need them, you got them, all right? <laughs> then they gotta have a conversation with that wardrobe assistant, and man, she's a bitch. I just don't. Right, please, look, I, look Randy, I, I'm asking you to help me out, man. If the, if the answer's no, the, the answer's no. Not, not no with excuses. Hey, man. This ain't a Andy McLaughlin picture, you know? And I can't afford to hire a bunch of guys that smoke cigarettes and sit around talking to each other all day on the chance that I might use them. I got a four-man team here, Rick. If I need more than that, I got to get it approved. And, you know, I, I, I got to look after my dudes. Hey, hey and, and if your dudes were a better match for me, I'd say, oh, okay, you got me. But, but, but that, that's not the case, and you know it. He, he's a great match for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, no. Hey, you could do anything you want to him. Throw him off a building, right? Light him on fire. Hit him with a Lincoln, right? Get creative. Do whatever you want. He's just he's happy for the opportunity. Rick? Yeah. I don't dig him. And I don't dig the vibe he brings on a set. So this is Tarantino trying to pinpoint a moment in history when something changed. And he did this with Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained. And I think it's very important to know a little bit about uh, Sharon Tate. So Sharon Tate was an up-and-coming Hollywood star who was married to Roman Polanski, who was a very up-and-coming director at the time, and he directed Rosemary's Baby. Uh, She and her friends were brutally murdered in her own home by the Manson family. Uh, And if you haven't heard about 
the Manson family. Charles Manson is someone you could look up. And uh, these little facts or big facts uh, are very important uh, to the story. It's Tarantino's pinpointing, again, that moment in time and then having a story revolve around that moment. Again, like he did with Inglorious Bastards. Um, and knowing that fact, I think, will get you a lot more enjoyment out of the film. Mm. What do you think on that? Yeah, so, I mean, I went into this film having barely seen the trailer, having tried to avoid any or or you know any information at all about it because I wanted to really go in and enjoy it for what it was. But what Craig has just said isn't a spoiler. It's it's a historical fact and it's definitely important. And once you once you've seen the film, you'll understand why it's quite important to have this background knowledge because it will certainly change your perception of what you're seeing unfold on screen. Yeah, uh, we had somebody on Instagram message us asking us why we think a lot of the uh, people who have watched the film have been very disappointed with it. And I think it's because um, if you go in not knowing these facts, you don't really get what's Mm. going on in terms of what Tarantino is trying to show you visually and in the way that the plot is moving along. And it does move really quite slowly. There seems to be a lot of waiting around, a lot of them killing time on set uh, when they're making the film, uh, and they're they're all brutally unaware of what's to come. Mm. And knowing this bit of knowledge really helps you in building the tension. Um, And if you didn't know that, you're going to be thinking, this is so painfully slow. Um, But... It, it, it helps. It really does. No, it does. It does help. And, and Craig's got this absolutely spot on. I mean, the film has a very long running time, 159 minutes. And uh, I've spoken to a number of people. Uh, I'm up the cinema quite a lot. And when people come out who I know who have just seen the film, I say, what do you think? And everyone has said that they've enjoyed it. But, and it's always a but, it's too long. Uh, and I think it's about 20, 25 minutes too long. Um, it could certainly do with a tighter cut. But... Once you've seen where the film goes, it's definitely a film that you want to see again. I want to see this film again. All all the big films of recent years, think of um, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Think of... um, I've literally forgotten the name of it. Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga. Star is Born. A Star is Born, my, one of my favourite films in recent years. As soon as I've seen those films, I wanted to see them again. That's the sign of a good film. I want to see this film again, and I'll probably have a better analysis of it once I've seen it for a second time. But Craig's absolutely spot on. It's important to go in with this knowledge, and it is definitely a little bit too long. Yeah, I think there were, there were some relatively boring parts within the film, and, and, and I think that's a fair analysis to say that. But the, nonetheless, Leonardo DiCaprio uh, and um, Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt, thank you, David. Uh, <laughs> really do have some really brilliant performances mm. in in yep. the film, and despite their some boring elements to them, they do redeem themselves yeah, much later on, and yeah. it is absolutely. Brilliant. I mean, it's a fantastic cast. I mean, you've got obviously Brad Pitt, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Margot Robbie's in it. Uh, I'll touch upon her in a sec. Al Pacino gives a very small cameo. It's brilliant to see him uh, on the big screen. I mean, the reviews of this film have been fairly solid from the critics. It gets an 85% critic, um, uh, you know, response on Rotten Tomatoes. The audience give it a score of 70%. One thing this film does have, it is energised throughout with the period setting. The film's sense of time and place is astonishing. I have never seen a film in the big screen or any film, actually, that captures, you know, 1969 Hollywood as well as this film does. Um, 
It's really interesting, actually, if you listen to uh, interviews with Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio, there is no CGI throughout this film at all. They talk extensively, both of them, about Quentin Tarantino's attention to detail, um, where he literally transforms whole blocks of Hollywood to make it feel like 1969's Hollywood, and that goes right down to the smallest of details. So every single shop window, all the clothes in there are done, all the signs, um, everything they're smoking, everything they're drinking, everything they're wearing. Uh, His attention to detail is astonishing. Um, And this film actually started out as a novel. I didn't know if you knew that, Craig. No, Um, I didn't. Tarantino started to write this as a novel, um, which gave Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio a really extensive background on their characters. And it makes sense that this started as a novel because you can see that Tarantino wants to say so much about all of these characters. And he knows that he's only got two and a half, you know, three hours. I'm not quite sure exactly how long it is, 159 minutes. Two hours, 50, something like that, yeah. So he's trying to, you know, any any novel that's crammed into a film is always difficult. Um, But he captures the, the era so, so well. And actually that slow pace, you can tell it's that it's, come from his his vision for a novel because there is so much attention to detail and character detail. Um, And there's lovely little quirks that I found out. So Cliff Booth drives this really beat-up blue car um, and it's actually the not the exact car, but it's the make and model that his stepfather used to drive around in. As in Tarantino. Um, As in Tarantino's stepfather, Mm -hmm. yeah. So when Tarantino was a child uh, in in 1969, he used to drive around in, in that car. And it's just little things like that. Um, that make this film really, really quirky. And I said I wanted to just briefly touch upon Margot Robbie. She actually wrote Quentin Tarantino a letter saying that she was a massive fan of his work and wanted to be in one of his films. And that's how she ended up being cast in this. Although you, you did have some concerns with her character, I believe. Yeah, I mean, they weren't concerns, but it it was more that... You, when you're watching the film, there isn't much character development for mm. for Sharon Tate's character. But the reason why that is is because really you're going into the film and should be knowing a lot more about that character or yep. that that person in time. So you you get a sense that she was an up and coming star, and what happened to her was terrible because you know what could she have been, and that is essentially what this movie is about. And mm. it's once upon a time in Hollywood. It is that yeah. story, and you know it's. It's fantastic, and I like the fact that you've just said that you know Tarantino started this off as a novel, which is interesting because Tarantino has been on record saying that he's only going to make ten films, mm. and after those ten films, he's going to start writing novels and he's going to start writing uh, things about the film industry and giving us detailed analysis about They're movies. They're going to be long books. They are, <laughs> but he is he is the person who knows all about it mm. because he goes into so much detail and he understands cinema and he mm. loves. He loves cinema, uh, and you can see that with his previous movies. You've got I can, I'm going to name them all, uh, all nine films that he's done previously: Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Kill Bill Volume One and Two, Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, The Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So there are nine films. There's 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 not a bad film in there. No, there is really, and there are some absolute classics as well. Inglorious Bastards. I adore it. Django Unchained is one of my favourite Tarantino movies. The Hateful Eight came under a fair amount of criticism, but I I thought it was actually superb. Again, quite Mm. slow, really built on the character development. Pulp Fiction's a bit of a classic, Reservoir Dogs. And a lot of people say this is some of his best work since Jackie Brown, which was another brilliant film. I mean, the the man is a genius. He is. And, you know, 
the, the next film, what could it be? The speculation mm. is that he was on board to direct the untitled Star Trek movie, which yeah. could be very interesting. But he's also said that he's come up with a really great idea for a horror film, which he hasn't really done yet. No. So obviously a lot of his films have a lot of gratuitous... Uh, um, violence in the yeah. films which could be seen as quite horrific but they're not horror films no and this could be you know the ultimate tarantino yeah. movie and i think it's going to be it could be great would i like him to see would i like to see him do a star trek film i'm not i'm not sure i think it could be mm. great but i think it's a direction that i wouldn't have seen him go in yeah and i think a horror film would be the ultimate icing on the cake to his 10 films that he's ever going to do i mean there's also talk about uh, a third kill bill um, that hasn't been ruled out. Really? Yeah, yeah. I was reading a, a, or reading and watching a number of interviews. Tarantino has said that he's sick and tired of being asked this question. So he is actually, um, in many ways, like pulling people's legs. So he says that if one interviewer asks him what it's going to be, he'll go, yeah, it's going to be Star Trek. If someone else asks him, he's like, yeah, it's going to be a horror movie. If someone else asks him, he's like, yeah, it's going to be Kill Bill Volume 3. A bit like Jordan Peele. Yeah, so he's he's just opening up loads of doors so we don't really know. But it it, uh, it is a shame. But his 10th film, whatever it is, it will absolutely smash the box office. I just wanted to briefly come back to what you said about um, Tate's character not really being developed and potentially maybe being a bit one-dimensional. The Independent, um, a female reviewer, picked up on this. She actually said this. This was the headline of her article. Quentin Tarantino's male gaze in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood isn't just insulting, it's profoundly boring. Now, if you read that whole article, she basically says that she doesn't like how Tate is objectified and there's lots of shots of her dancing and basically it's about what she looks like more than who she is. Mm. Um, so we there is a lot more development in DiCaprio's characters and there's a lot more develop, development in um, Brad Pitt's character. Um, and I say DiCaprio's characters because he actually plays multiple characters in the film because he's an actor, um, which is really one of the hardest things to do is for an actor to act as an actor. It's a very sort of strange... It's a bizarre concept, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, because we see, and it's it's amazing, we see a number of different films and, and, and things happening within one film. Um, but I, I think this, this lady who's written this article in The Independent has missed the point. Um, Tarantino makes it very clear that Sharon Tate's character is no more than a geographical coincidence that they ha she happens to live with Roman Polanski, who's next door to Leonardo DiCaprio's character, and that's it. And DiCaprio and Pitt are also very, you know, make that point clear. You know, people are like, why is Sharon Tate in this film? Why is Sharon Tate in this film? And they're like, it's just, ge it's just geography. And once you realise that it's just geography and that her character doesn't necessarily have to be developed, and then you see where the film goes, I think that lady has missed the point there. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed this film. It is too long, but having seen the end, I want to go back and see it again. It received a seven-minute standing ovation at Cannes Film Festival. Um, it's currently the favourite to win Best Picture at the 2020 Academy Awards. Uh, I Honestly, after last year of being hell-bent on A Star <laughs> Is Born is winning, I, I'm. It, it looks a wide-open race again, as usual. I can't say whether this will win, but it will certainly be nominated. This is going to be one of those films that's nominated for seven, eight, nine Academy Awards, including Best Director, Best Picture, um, probably Screenplay. Um, I can see either Brad Pitt and DiCaprio, or at least one of them being nominated. I think Brad Pitt's going for Best Supporting, and DiCaprio will be for Best Lead. Yeah, and I Margot Robbie could be in there as well. Look, 
Um, I could talk about this film for a long, long time, but overall, other than the running time, uh, I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. No, really agree with that statement there. Um, so, David, once upon a time in Hollywood, is it worth it? Yes. Look, I, I, I think you have to go into this film, and Craig has got this 100% spot on. I was worried about him telling you about Sharon Tate's fate, but actually it's a historical fact. It's a known fact. Going into the film, knowing that that fact will actually enhance your experience. It is a bit long, so stick with it. But enjoy being taken back in time because that's what Tarantino does here. He takes you back in time. It is so vivid and real. I feel like I have gone back in time. I feel like I was there. I never felt like I was in the cinema. I felt like I was there with the characters. The ending is sensational. I can't wait to see the film again. It's going to do very, very well at the Academy Awards. So, yes, it is worth it. Craig? (laughs) Yeah, it is worth it. And you summed it up perfectly there. Well, thank you very much. So that was our review for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So our second review on this week's episode is Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw. Now, this is the ninth film in the Fast and Furious set of movies, and it is, in fact, the first spin-off movie. And this sees The Rock and Jason Statham team up as Luke Hobbs and Deckard Shaw, two characters who were first seen within the Fast and Furious universe in the seventh film. Uh, but the great thing about this, is, and I can attest, and I'm sure David can as well, that you don't need to see the other movies to understand what's going on here. All you need to know is that an MI6 agent named Hattie Shaw ends up with a programmable virus inside her which then makes her the target of an evil organisation and a genetically modified slash enhanced uh, Idris Elba uh, who wants the virus. So it's up to Hobbs and Shaw to work together to save the world and stop Idris Elba and the evil organisation from getting said virus. I think we should listen to a clip. So do I. M-I-6. Whoa, whoa, I'm a fan. Fantastic job, and I think you look amazing in your matching outfits. Who the hell are you? Bad guy. Get on the ground! Now! So there we have a clip from Fast and Furious, Hobbs and Shaw, and I think Craig has selected a great clip there with some good dialogue in it, and it really sums up what kind of film this is. And that is my review of this film. It is what it is. You know, it's not going to be a film that's going to set the award season alight. It's not going to be nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. And you go in expecting a certain type of film, and it delivers what you expect. It actually gets very good scores on Rotten Tomatoes. The critics give it 67%, and the audience give it 88%. It's directed by David Leach, and he's certainly no idiot when it comes comes to directing films he directed and produced John Wick and he also produced John Wick chapter 2 and he was also the director on Deadpool 2 which I really really enjoyed it proves he's a capable director and the, you know and the critics haven't panned this 67% is a very um a very you know decent score it's okay this film you know I think the rock is great I really like Dwayne the Rock Johnson I think he's he's just he not only can he act he acts he knows his role um, 
He was great in Jumanji. He was good in Skyscraper. Uh, I didn't see the film where he was fighting a flying wolf, but I think you really quite enjoyed that. Yeah, Rampage. Um, yeah, Rampage. The, the problem with this film is I think the pace is a little bit slow at the start. It, it, you, you sort of want it to kick off a bit quicker, uh, and it, it slowly burns into it. Um, the plot is completely insane. I mean, the plot is totally mental, but it gets away with it. I mean, what this film does well is it doesn't take itself too seriously, but it also doesn't become a complete farce. Um, other than one scene where the, when Dwayne The Rock Johnson is literally holding on to a helicopter with a metal chain, and even Dwayne The Rock himself probably couldn't do that. It was, yeah, that was absolutely balmy. Yeah, there was one scene, it was about a four or five minute scene that was ridiculous and stupid, but it kept away from that for a majority of it. I, you know, like Craig says, I have seen, I think, two or three of the Fast and Furious films. They were the kind of films when you were a teenager, or when I was a teenager, you'd go and see them. I find them very, very forgettable. Uh, I can't comment too much on them because I haven't seen all of them. And really, to, to comment on them, I, do, I would need to see all of them in chronological order. This is the kind of film that I enjoyed, but nonetheless is a bit forgettable. In, in a few months' time, you will ask me what it was about, and I'll probably say some sort of genetically enhanced robotic Idris Elba, who is very well cast, and... Dwayne the Rock Johnson going toe to toe, um, but yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it. It's a real popcorn movie, and I think I had, I had, I, I think a piece of carrot cake, uh, hot dog, some nachos. I enjoyed it. I think you just had the nachos, didn't you? I had a bit of carrot cake before, and the cheese board. No, no cheese board this time. <laughs> Maybe next time. <laughs> I, I have to give uh, Vanessa Kirby a big thumbs up in this as well. I think she's absolutely brilliant. She can go toe-to-toe with The Rock and Jason Statham. And she has a good scene with Idris Elba, as you can hear, as you heard in that clip as well. Um, you know, she's not the damsel in distress as most people thought she would be, mm. uh, despite being the one that's infected with this virus. She still gives it all. Um, I really enjoyed the scenes where they're whizzing around London as well, where you would expect most of it to be CGI'd. Actually, uh, they've actually filmed that for real and they fly past a Greg's, uh, a John Lewis, and that really did make me chuckle a little yeah. bit. It enhanced the viewing, it made it feel realistic. It's, Greg's is a very, very British thing. It's very British. It just sells pastry. Lots it, of it. It's literally just a pastry shop. And they're vegan sausage rolls now, which oh. are apparently amazing. And also more fat in them than the actual real sausage roll, I believe. Well, some of those vegans need a bit of extra fat, don't they? Oh, God, I don't know if you can say that. Can I? Can't I? I think you've offended vegans. Oh, not Somehow again. you have managed to offend vegans, <laughs> but not me. In a review of Fast and Furious, you have offended vegans. Well done. I apologise to all of our vegan listeners. Well... <laughs> I, I also have to say that the fighting in action, as you've said, is ridiculous. It is mm. balmy. But as you said, it is a real popcorn film and it is very enjoyable. Uh, there's some really nice cameos in there. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I won't spoil who yeah. they are, but they were quite surprising because they weren't even mentioned in the trailer or no, anything and like that. they are good as well. Yeah, they are very funny uh, and well done. Um, and yeah, as we said, you know, The Rock, you can't really... He has, he's got this sort of... Um, what what do you call it? Not chemistry, but he's got this formula. Presence. Yeah, this presence, but this formula that he uses in all of his films, from Jumanji, as you said, Skyscraper, Rampage, even Hercules, that he is this just force to be reckoned mm. with. And, and he gets away with it. He gets away with everything that he does, including that, that scene with, the, with the, the chain and him pulling on it, attached to a helicopter and then a vehicle. Um, the one thing I did want to say is that there's not many vehicles in this film as as where you look at the other Fast and Furious films and they're very heavily orientated around cars yeah. and a lot of driving. This is more of a an action yeah. 
sci-fi almost because I mean Idris Elba is a genetically modified cyber enhanced man mm. or humanoid and and that's the first time these films have really gone down that route and actually it works yeah it, it does yeah like you said all the other fast and furious are very much based around the fast and furious the the cars and the engines and the stories around them but also family as well it's yeah. very family orientated and does they still toss apart does touch upon this as well as you may have already heard obviously Hattie Shaw is the sister of Jason Statham's character as well so they 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 there is that family element in there as well uh, there is another cameo in there who plays their mother won't tell you who that is because that's mm. a nice surprise as well but it, again it does have yes. some themes that are built upon from the Fast and Furious films uh, I haven't seen them all as as I said before but it, I still remember that that family orientated part being part of the films. I I enjoyed it. Um, it's not going to win awards, as you've said, um, but it it was an enjoyable day out to the cinema. I mean, we saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on the same day as this. We saw this straight after, and you know it it satisfied. We weren't yeah. bored. We weren't wanting to get out of the cinema. We were we were actually entertained by both films, and it, and that was a good day. I think it was. I enjoyed it. Was that my birthday? It was. Oh yeah, happy birthday! Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I haven't given you a gift on 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 air like last, I did last year. Time. You gave me a gift, but never mind. I'll, I'll survive. I'll cry myself to sleep tonight. I did buy you breakfast. You did. Uh, I will. Sh- I will say this. We went to Frankie and Benny's. I had a, a, a huge breakfast, delicious. Went to the uh, to the bathroom, came back, and the bill had been paid. So, Mister Fields, I thank you for that delicious, unhealthy breakfast. That's all right. It would have undoubtedly shortened my life. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, I'll ask you the question first. Craig, Fast and Furious, Hobbs and Shaw, is it worth it? Yes, this is definitely worth seeing in the cinema. It's action-packed. There's a lot to like in the cinema uh, that you could only get from the cinema experience. Obviously, a big screen and some big uh, audio as well going alongside that really helps uh, the enjoyment factor of seeing it in a cinema. Seeing it at home, you would need to have like a rather large TV and a really good sound system to really get that full cinematic experience. Uh, so seeing it in the cinema, it, it's worth doing. And uh, for you, David? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is what it is. If you've seen all of the other Fast and Furious films, you have no choice but to see it. And even if you haven't, this is the kind of action movie that does work as a standalone film. Uh, it's a real popcorn movie. If you're going to see it, I'd recommend seeing it on the big film. So actually, yes, Fast and Furious, Hobbs and Shaw, both me and Craig would say that it is worth seeing in the cinema. We love the cinema and we're able to see all these movies with Cineworld's Unlimited Card. See any film, any time, as many times as you like. Being an Unlimited Card holder gives you access to all the 2D films you can handle for one monthly price. Be the first to see a movie with special Unlimited member advanced screenings and secret screenings. Save on snacks and drinks in the cinema with 10% off in your first year and 25 in your second. Enjoy 25% off food and drink at partner restaurants, which includes Yo Sushi, Cafe Rouge, Bella Italia, La Iguana, La Tasca and Belgo. All for the monthly price of just £18.40. Apply today using the code ISITWORTHIT, all one word, to get £10 off your first month with Cineworld Unlimited. So we're going to review our third film on this week's episode, and it's The Lion King. But before we do that, we just have to tell you just how hot it is in mm. this studio right now. Oh, my 
God. So we're coming up to one o'clock. It is August 23rd, and it's about 24, 25 degrees outside. But in the studio, it's got to be 35, maybe maybe more. I've had to unbutton my shirt. It's a rather ghastly sight. but It's it a is, sight to behold. It is seriously, seriously warm. But, Craig, what are we reviewing now? We are reviewing The Lion King. We are, and this is John Favreau direct his second Disney remake, uh, the first being The Wonderful Jungle Book. Now, this incarnation of The Lion King, if you didn't see the previous version, which I think most of you probably have. But it sees Simba, the newly born lion cub, uh, to King Mufasa take on his own destiny playing out on the plains of Africa. However, Simba's uncle Scar is less than happy of the birth of Simba as this makes Scar second in line to the throne. So Scar hatches a plan that will see Simba exiled and Mufasa no longer king and Scar king of Pride Rock. Let's take a listen to a clip. This gorge is where all lions come to find their roar. All lions? Even my dad? Even Mufasa came here when he was your age. Refused to leave until his roar could be heard above the rim. All the way up there? That's when you know you found it. With a little practice, you'll never be called a cub again. Watch this. You'll get it, Simba. Just takes time. I'll check on you later. Dad will be so proud, won't he? It's a gift he'll never forget. So that was a clip from The Lion King. Um, if you weren't aware, this story is loosely based on uh, William Shakespeare's Hamlet, uh, and it also borrows from the original very heavily from something called Kimber the White Lion and if you didn't know if you don't know what I'm talking about there give it a google uh, you'll see a lot of similarities there mm. uh, so obviously disney have rebranded a lot of these elements and put it into their own their own story uh, and thank you Dan and Ranjit who brought that fact to my attention because it's actually a rather big element yeah. uh, of of the lion king um, I'm going to talk a little bit now about the technology behind making this film because I think it's rather important. Mm. So John Favreau, uh, the director of Jungle Book, has incorporated some of the technology that he had from his previous movies uh, into this, uh, making it a very hyper-realistic film. Um, it's made like no other film. It uses virtual reality uh, in a warehouse on a large soundstage um, and basically... Um, the technology that they had previously for this was something that was very bespoke from Avatar. Now, since moving on from Jungle Book, they've managed to use something uh, called uh, Oculus Rift, which is a brand of virtual reality goggles, uh, and also some HTC uh, branded goggles as well. And this basically allows uh, John Favreau to put these goggles on, standing on the soundstage, and basically being on the plains of Africa. So he's directing a film as although he's standing on the, in the plains of Africa. So him and all of his team have got these goggles on. He can then basically say, right, camera, I want it here. Uh, I want the characters laid out here. And he can literally physically, with his hands, pick up the characters, move them around, move trees around. They then put a real camera on the set as well. And they can see where that camera is placed on, mm. on a dolly. And they then have a camera operator who moves that, ca that camera in real, in real time in the virtual reality world. Wow. And that really adds to how brilliant this film is. It's obviously very hyper-realistic, but it also adds a very cinematic experience without making it feel unrealistic. Yeah. Uh, so 
that that was really cool. But then I had did a little bit more digging into it, um, and it would seem that the brands like HTC and Oculus uh, really wanted to help progress the technology uh and then it, it, it filters down after they do all the r&d research and, and development to the consumer so we're going to be getting some of this technology oh wow ourselves some in the virtual future. reality goggles yeah so they what they've used is a piece of technology called unity unity mm. is like a game engine that a lot of developers use to to create games uh and i think a lot of gaming people will understand what it is and it's a, a, as i said a virtual reality gaming engine um and they've just built an entire film out of virtual reality. Mm. I think it's absolutely incredible how they've how they've managed to do that. Uh, and John Favreau is at the forefront of developing this technology for his movies. And I'm sure he'll be doing another Disney movie sometime soon, taking this technology and building on it further. Uh, and which I'd I'd actually really like to see. Um, they've even shot some of it in IMAX as well. So there's some sequences that they actually got IMAX cameras in the building to be able to give you that IMAX aspect ratio to to give you those stunning wide-angle IMAX scenes. And I think the question that I'm trying to pose here is more of a philosophical one in a sense that being able to develop a film in this hyper-realistic mm. virtual reality way, does it impact the film in the sense that is it so hyper-realistic that it's no longer an animation, it's no longer reality. So when those two things cross together, does it make something that is worthy of seeing? Mm. Do you have an opinion on that first, or would you like me to say my bit? You go first. I do definitely have an opinion on that. So uh, in my opinion, I think it's, it's brilliant. But I think it's at the expense of the story. Mm. I think the the voices uh, has to be, or the voice acting has to be on point, mm. like really, really on point. And I think it falls short. I think it falls short at the beginning of the film, and I think it falls short. And uh, the character, the actor who plays uh, young Simba, doesn't quite get the emotion across as how it was in the animation. Now, obviously, in the animation, you have a lot more emotion in the facial features, yep. whereas this, you got some of it, but it wasn't quite as impactful, I think. Yeah, there was very... There was a minimal movement of the mouth. So in, in the original cartoon, with, with cartoon, with animation, not only do you have the voice acting, you know, perhaps best... You know the power of voice acting best. You know shown with someone like Robin Williams in Aladdin, but then you have the animation to go alongside it, and you can really draw emotions out of of animals. Whereas in this, like you said, it's so hyper realistic. It's it it genuinely has the feeling of a David Attenborough documentary mm. at times. That that that's the problem. You you struggle to get emotionally connected to the characters like you did in the cartoon, simply because there isn't that emotion in the characters because they look so real it's like watching real lions and actually you could watch this film in total silence you'd be able to follow the story fine you don't almost need the the, the dialogue because visually you can see everything unfolding it's yeah. it's it's incredible i mean the first point that i wanted to make about this film is that 
these Disney remakes are making money. Therefore, Disney will continue to make them. I mean, just to put it in perspective, The Jungle Book, Aladdin, and Beauty and the Beast, those three remakes combined have taken more than $3 billion at the box office. Then you think about all the merchandise that they can put out, both old and new. Because this is the thing. When Disney makes a remake, it means that they can sell old merchandise and new merchandise. So I've seen loads of stuff on the internet of old um, hoodies for Aladdin and old Lion King hoodies and old Jungle Book hoodies and things like that. And then hmm. the new ones as well. And sometimes you see them side by side. So And in Disney stores as well. It's, it opens so many new avenues for them to sell stuff. But these films are making money. Therefore, they'll keep keep making them. Is that a good thing? Well, that divides opinion. For example, Dumbo was terrible. Uh, and you can see the, div- the, the the division in opinion just by looking at the Rotten Tomatoes scores. The audience give it 88%. So this has been really, really popular. My My first review of this film was probably going to be a bit more critical than it is now. It actually came in at number 10 in my best 10 films of 2019 so far, simply because, and Craig fantastically laid out, the incredible technology they've used to bring this film completely to life um but you then look at the critics score and it only gets 53 percent, which is i was more inclined to go for the 53 score than i was for the 88 but i've spoken to so many people who've seen this film and they've all really 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 enjoyed it i mean the 1994 lion king is a modern disney classic and it was always going to divide opinion and 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 the statistics do show that but like you said i mean the opening sequence of this film is absolutely sensational it's arguably in fact i think it is better than the original because it's they do it piece for piece. It's a complete remake of the original, that opening sequence, but you're seeing it almost like it is real animals, and it does look real. It looks, like I said, almost like a, a David Attenborough documentary, and there's this brilliant scene, and it's in the original as well, where Simba's fur makes its way back to Rafiki, so Rafiki realises that Simba's alive, and the way they do that set piece in this film is sensational. It's absolutely Brilliant. Tamoon and Pumba, they really bring the film to life. So like you said, there's a bit of an issue with pace, but Seth Rogen is brilliant as Pumba. I think the Beyonce Knowles song is great, but it does just feel like it's been plopped in a bit um, in the sense it's a bit of a plug for her. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It doesn't... It fits in and it works, but it just suddenly comes in like, here's a Beyonce Knowles song, boom. Um, My one criticism of this film... and. I I wonder if it's because we know exactly what happens and it is literally a, a, a you know almost like a brick for brick rebuild. It's just the pace of the film. I found the film very very slow, and maybe that's because I knew where it was going. If I went into this film having not seen the original, which I'm pretty sure most people will have done, maybe the pace would have been would, would have been better. But my main three problems with it were the pace, the lack of facial expressions, which is why that hyper realism is sensational to view, but it is also difficult at the same time. And finally, the musical numbers. The musical numbers didn't really work, again, alongside that hyper-realism, and also Zazu as well. Um, so Seth Rogen brings in brilliant comedy, um, and arguably the this Tamoon and Pumba are just as funny if not at times more funny than the original to Moon and Pumba. But Zazu lacks that real comedy element that he had in the original. So that was played by John Oliver, wasn't it? Yeah, and originally by Rowan Atkinson. Mm. And maybe it just missed that little bit of comedy. And I totally agree with you as well. The young Simba felt very wooden and very mechanical. And I was very 
aware that it was a child actor. Now, I don't want to be too critical of a, of a child actor, but I, I didn't think Young Simba was as good as the Young Simba in, in the original. But visually, it was a masterpiece, and that's why it made it into my top ten films, because visually, using the technology you outlined, they have created something sensational to look mm. at. Um, I have to disagree with you with one of your one of your things that you didn't like about the film, so the pace. Mm. Um I rewatched the original and I felt that the pace was very slow at the like for the beginning and the middle of the film and then all of a sudden everything comes to a shocking end mm. uh of, of the original Lion King where this it paced it out a bit it was a continuous pace pretty much all the way through the film so it 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 made for better viewing in my opinion um it, it was it wasn't the best pace it could be, but it was better, I felt, than the original. It felt longer, wow, okay. it felt like it developed more, um, whereas the original felt like it was building stuff up and then just just ended. Yeah. Um, whether that's a, a good thing in, in uh, you, know, child's, you know, a child's attention span or not, mm. whether they did it for that reason. I think Disney are going down a more adult route when they are remaking yes, these films. Yes, I totally agree. They're, they're orientating these films towards those who were young when the originals came Absolutely. out. And they're trying to capture the audience of those who have grown up and want to relive their childhood in a way, um, as well as capturing a new audience as well. Because if, if you think about it, when we were younger, we were used to cartoon-drawn animation. Mm. So for us, it's a little bit disorientating as well to see these hyper-realistic things. Yeah. Children now are seeing and growing up with the hyper-realistic yeah. nature of these films. For to them, it's 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 very easy to get used to. Yeah, I mean, when we were kids, it was Lion King on VHS, and you used to pause it, and when you paused it, all the characters would shake up and down. The big and grey lines yeah, across yeah, yeah, and when you rewound it, everyone, when you would, you would... Not like now, where you go back in pieces, you would literally rewind it and see the characters moving backwards. It was always quite amusing but i think you're totally right like the original lion king you would say that is a children's movie and you would put it on and your children would watch it and adults might watch it with their kids but it was a children's film whereas what this is is this is a film designed for adults and for children and that comes in with that hyper realism that is sensational i mean we saw this in imax 3d and it was a sight to behold like i said when i saw that opening sequence i thought this is a masterpiece the film can't quite live up to that opening sequence because it's a bit like, um, you know, Saving Private Ryan in that sense. It starts with the best bit. Mm. You know, Saving Private Ryan throws you straight in with the with the drama, with and, the drama yeah. and the action. And that's what this does. You know, that song comes, the sun rises, and you get that brilliant opening sequence. And it's always going to be difficult to to live up to that. James Earl Jones is back as Mufasa. He gives a uh, a brilliant performance. Um, you know, Jeremy Irons, who played Scar originally, was sensational. And, and, the, and the, the new actor here does a very, very good job. But again, he's sort of walking in the footsteps of a legend there. A very iconic performance. But overall, I mean, all Disney remakes are going to be compared to Dumbo mm. for me. And this was far better than Dumbo. Uh, I think it was probably better than Aladdin as well, and 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 I quite enjoyed it. I well, Aladdin you enjoyed, you mean? Or yeah, no, yeah. but I thought this was probably arguably a little bit better than Aladdin. Yeah, just in the in the sense that one of my favourite films of all time is Titanic because James Cameron manages to sail and sink the Titanic without ever sailing and sinking the Titanic. Titanic's now it was made in 1997, so it was actually came out in 1997, actually made in 1996, so it's 23 years old. But you can watch that film now and it still stands up. And that's what this film does. It 
brings these characters to life. It brings this story to life in such a hyper visually realistic way that for that reason alone, it, it is well well worth seeing 100% in the cinema. Yeah. I I have to say about uh, Donald Glover as well. So Donald Glover played Old yeah. Simba and I felt like he, he was a fantastic choice. I think he was brilliant. I just feel like he was overshadowed by Beyonce and mm. I feel like there could have been more of Donald Glover on the screen. It was a bit of a Beyonce plug though wasn't it? it? It was and I thought that was a real shame actually because Donald Glover is an outstanding actor mm. and a fantastic singer as well uh, if you've yeah, ever listened yeah, to any of his music very good. he you know Childish Gambino that is his stage name for his music and, and he's got some he's a really talented young guy uh, we saw him in uh, the Star Wars spin-off as well um, recently well, I say recently it was last year um, but <laughs> we, ag- again one. a film that we both really enjoyed that was your first introduction to Donald Glover in a Star Wars yeah. film and, and yeah you know it's it's a shame that there's a lot of things that bring this film down, but the hyperrealism was visually stunning. It's yeah. a it's a film that is 100% worth going to see on the big screen because mm. of just how visually stunning yeah. it really, really is. So if you're somebody who wants to go and see uh, a film that captured your imagination as a child, this will surely uh, be a, a blast from the past and a blast from the past, sorry, that you will enjoy. Mm. Um, so for me, it's worth it. Yeah, I totally agree with Craig. Um, it's it is 100% worth seeing in the cinema. Is it worth watching at home? Yes, it's probably still worth watching at home, but whilst it's out in the cinema, go and see it in the biggest screen possible. I'd thoroughly recommend seeing it in IMAX. We actually saw it in IMAX 3D, uh, and I don't like 3D films, but this worked in 3D. So the new Lion King, the Disney remake, uh, for me, yes, it is definitely worth seeing. So our fourth review on this week's episode is The Sun is Also a Star. And this is the best-selling young adult novel by Nicola Yoon and has been adapted by director Rai Russo Young. And it tells the story of two somewhat star-crossed lovers who serendipitously find their paths intertwined in New York and as such fall into the inevitable doomed love genre, both having to make life-defining choices over the course of one-slash-two days. With the backdrop of immigration and a reflection of today's America, this should visually tell a compelling story. Let's take a listen to a clip and then we'll let you know if it succeeded or not. I always believed it would take a lifetime to understand the human heart. In the end, all it took was a single day. What's your name? Natasha. I'm Daniel. There was a reason. I don't believe in love. What if I could get you to fall in love with me? Just give me a day. I'm not changing my mind, though. My key ingredients to falling in love are friendship, chemistry, and the X Factor. What's the X Factor? Don't worry, we've got it. (laughs) So 
as you can hear from that, that wasn't actually a clip. It was more of a, a, a short one-minute trailer of some sort. And it is, it does sort of go into this realm of very philosophical or very whimsical, lovey-dovey teenage romance movie. Mm. Um, we've seen a lot of these over the years. And uh, this one tries to separate love uh, by talking about science and the other uh, separating love by it being a, a real-life feeling and mm. emotion. Uh, and ultimately these two people uh, are going to fall in love. Uh, it's been speculated um, you know, about love over the course of many hundreds of years. You know, We see it in William Shakespeare all the way up to, to this sort of movie. And you know, it, it evolves around a place, this, this, this movie. It, it revolves around New York and it, this New York evo- uh, evokes a very multicultural love for, for the place. It's, it's a home. Um, it's just very unfortunate that this movie somewhat plays out almost like a holiday promotional video for <laughs> yeah, New York. True. There are some very beautiful, stunning mm. landscape shots. There's these shots that take place uh, either on a helicopter or a drone, where it's on a gimbal, and then it has this strange moving sideways shot, which actually was a somewhat off-pitting, whilst the, the backdrop was obviously all very beautiful. Yeah. But it evoked this very unsettling nauseating feeling whilst mm. being in the cinema and it then therefore reminded me that I'm sitting in a cinema yes. watching a movie play out. Um, we have two uh, very good performances perhaps on their own. So you have Yara uh, Shahdidi, uh, I think I've pronounced that wrong, I do apologise, and Charles Melton who are great on their own but I think together lack the chemistry and the yep, charm that totally they, they need. Um you know, they their chemistry just, just doesn't align with each other and I don't see it being very real. You agree with that, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I totally agree with you, Sue. Uh, Yara Shahidi, who plays Natasha, she's this... Um, budding young scientist who's obsessed with maths and science and two plus two is four and that can be proven and here you go here's the maths to prove it and she doesn't believe that love is real because it can't be scientifically proven and then uh, Daniel played by Charles Melton comes along and you know he, he is a stunning you know, a hunk of a man. They're both very beautiful people. They're both very beautiful, yeah. And, you know, but he's particularly, he's got a fantastic jawline, he's got a great body, you know. (laughs) You know, it's true, though. And he comes on and I'm going to show you love's real. And it's a bit like, I want to vomit in my own mouth. But you go with it. And like you said, both of them give good performances. I'm not saying they individually don't give good performances. But the problem is, is that you're watching two people apparently fall in love whilst at the same time they're clearly not in love. This this is the problem. He's like, I'm going to prove that I can make you fall in love with me in a day. And without going into too many details of whether she does or not, you can probably work it out from, from the trailer. Um, it, it doesn't feel like they are in love. And Craig got it, you know absolutely spot on when he talks about this is set in New York and it's a very bizarre set of circumstances where we have like a set piece play out between our two protagonists they'll be talking and the characters do develop and then it will cut away from that and it will have like aerial shots of New York and it will have shots of New York streets and Central Park and it will have you know a panoramic sweeping shot of the Statue of Liberty and all of those are visually very very nice but they don't actually work with what's unfolding on on screen. Mm. So 
you know, it's okay. Let's pan. Let's let's cut to a panning shot of the Statue of Liberty. Well, why? That's got nothing to do with the plot, and it almost felt like it wasn't stock footage. Um, it was clearly shot for this film, but it almost felt like action. Yep, cut. Now cut to that stock footage of New York. Action. Cut. Stock footage, and it just was very back and forth. The pace was a little bit off. The flow on this film was very very jagged. It didn't have a very good edit or a very good cut. And that made it quite difficult to watch. I was, I, I spoke earlier about uh, Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I felt like I was there. I didn't feel like I was in the cinema at any point. I felt like I was totally submerged in that cinematic experience. Whereas this, I was really aware of my own body, that I was sat in a cinema watching a film mm. and watching what, to me, felt like two people that actually didn't have much chemistry, almost forcing themselves to fall in love. Um the film does redeem itself. You think it's going to go down a certain road and it starts to go down that road. And then the ending is actually quite satisfying. I mean, the reviews, it gets 51% from the critics and 66% from the audience on Rotten Tomatoes. And I think that just about sums it up. I think it would have been more like 41, 56 if they hadn't have gone down this more quirky, original and slightly off off the road ending that you don't actually see coming and it's the ending that saves the film which is quite slow and quite difficult mm. to watch there's a lot of uh, serendipitous moments that ha- that happen within the film but feel very forced yes and it, absolutely it's combined with these very rhythmic words of a philosophical nature about science and love and the nature of chance um, which brings all those things together however there's so many of these moments that again it just doesn't suspend my belief that it is realistic in nature because there's so many of these serendipitous moments that it just can't happen. These happy chance moments would never really happen yeah. in the in the moments. And then that sort of navigates away from the true gravitas of the life choices that these mm. people have to make in the film, which actually made the film or could have made the film very, very compelling because uh, the, the, uh, the the girl character, she has to go, um, is, is being sent home. And I say home, her she comes from uh, an African country, wasn't it? I think... Jamaica. Jamaica, sorry. Yes, Jamaica, you're absolutely right. So she comes from Jamaica um, and he is from South Korea. And then there's these nice moments where they cut out of the film almost. Yes, these are very effective back at these characters' parents' past. And it's done almost in a slightly Wes Anderson way, Mm. in the way of, of, of storytelling. And that, I really liked those, but there was just actually not enough of that to give that compelling story and and really show the gravitas of what these two people are going through because it's too much of the whimsical, I'm going to make you fall in love with me in mm. this one day yeah, sort of very, stuff going very on. Very forced. Um, you know, there, I, I, I can directly compare this film to uh, Richard Linklater's uh, Before Sunrise. Now, if you haven't seen this, this came out in 1995 and it sees Ethan Hawke and Julie Deppley walk around the streets of Vienna. And there's no doubt that this is one of my favourite romantic uh, movies of all time. It's It's absolutely brilliant. And it has... That it's captured that because it has so much more believability in it. You feel like you're a fly in the wall watching these two people genuinely fall in love with each other over the course of this one night. And its believability is way higher than The Sun is Also a Star. Um, it got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes before Sunrise, which is obviously the highest rating you can possibly get on Rotten Tomatoes. And mm. I think that signifies that this is the ultimate walk around the city in a single day and fall in love with someone film yeah. um and i think it's because it rests upon the performances ethan hawke and julie deppley 
blow Charles Melton and uh, Yara Shandidi's uh, performances completely out of the water. I'm not saying that as again, then they're bad performances, but it's again, it's the com- it's the chemistry that they have. Ethan and and Julie have that chemistry, and they make you believe that they are two individuals that aren't yeah. actors; that they are two people that are genuinely falling in love. Um, and yeah, I think we should just go for the questions. Now. Yeah, do you want me to ask you? Yes, please, David. The sun is also a star. Is it worth it? Unfortunately, not. Um, I don't think this film is is worth seeing in the cinema. And actually, I think if you were to watch it at home on, say, Netflix or DVD, I think you'd struggle as well. Like Craig says, we're not saying that Charles Melton and Yara Shahidi have given bad performances. They haven't. It just the chemistry just doesn't feel right, and the edit isn't great. It it doesn't flow. The film does save itself and redeem itself with its ending. So if you have sat through the whole film, the ending will satisfy you. But overall, for me, it, it wouldn't unfortunately be worth seeing in the cinema. Yeah, I don't think it's worth seeing in the cinema either. I feel like this is a film that could have gone straight to Netflix, a yep. film that Netflix could have bought up and it would have been on there straight away. Uh, no, no release to the cinema. It just somehow managed to get itself in a cinema release uh yeah i think you might struggle to watch it at home as well uh, yeah i agree with you on all of those things yeah for me it's not worth it so that was our review for the sun is also a star So it's now time for our penultimate film of this week's episode and it's Blinded by the Light and it's directed by Gorinda Chadda who returns to the big screen with Blinded by the Light. She has, of course, made her name with uh, films such as Bend It Like Beckham and Angus Fong's and Perfect Snogging. Both of those films brought some great talent to the big screen and have had fantastic careers since. Uh, Kira Knightley being one of them and Aaron Taylor-Johnson. Uh, so this movie focuses on a young man called Javid who is a British Pakistani living in Luton, learning to navigate his way through life to the soundtrack of Bruce Springsteen. Uh, from his struggles of being a Pakistani facing racial abuse in England in 1987 to wanting to be a writer, something that goes against his father's very traditional views. It isn't until his classmate introduces him to the works of Springsteen that he starts to draw comparisons to the lyrics and his own surroundings and his story growing up in Luton. He's soon inspired to find his voice and follow his dreams. Let's take a listen to a clip. Root! I listened to everything. Both tapes. I'm telling you, I can feel it all right here. It's like Bruce knows everything I've ever felt. Everything I've ever wanted. I mean... Sometimes I feel so weak, I just want to explode. Explode and tear this whole town apart. Take a knife and cut this pain from my heart. I didn't know music could be like that. I mean, is a dream a lie if it don't come true? Or is it something worse? Congratulations. You popped your bruised cherry. You never forget your first time. So that was a clip from Blinded by the Light. Now, David and I saw this as an unlimited screening at Cineworld Helmel Hempstead, and we actually saw it at two, in two different screens because it was actually a very sold-out uh, secret screening mm. that we had. And uh, after we left those screenings, we both walked out of the cinema, and I think I came out positive about the film, mm. re- having really enjoyed it. You came out, on the other hand, feeling a bit neg- more negative about yeah. it. Yeah, so, I mean... <laughs> 
it would appear that I'm in the minority here. This this, this film has got brilliant reviews. The critics give it 90% on Rotten Tomatoes and the audience give it 92%. So I'm in the 10% of people that didn't really enjoy this film. And what the film does do well is it shows the power that music can have on people's lives, that, that, that music, like film, can take you on a journey and it can transport you to a place and it can bring you peace and it can bring you hope. And it is lovely to see this British-Pakistani teenager discover Bruce Springsteen and, 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 and have his life transformed, really, um, because he, like Craig said, his dad is a very traditional Pakistani and he wants his son to be, you know, a doctor or a lawyer and, and, and go to university and get an education, whereas his son has a passion for writing and he not only falls in love with the the rhythm of of bruce's music but more the lyrics and he really loves the lyrics like you heard in that clip and it does take you on that journey the the problem i had with the film was is that i found it very very ott and almost a little bit creepy so we got that Javid liked Bruce, Bruce Springsteen the, the the film is about Bruce Springsteen it just felt a little bit too much um some some of bruce's songs were played over and over again i just found it a little bit repetitive uh, and and also very stereotypical now it's it, it's a tough subject you know 19 late 1980s thatcher's britain particularly in a place like luton which is still incredibly racially divided now and there's still massive problems with you know movements like the english defense league and and, and other far-right movements in luton now but i felt like they stereotyped both sides from the from the pakistani father to also the sort of the white skinhead far-right brit and I thought they took a very complicated subject and tried to make it very, very simplistic. Um, I struggle with that. The the dad, the the character was very, very confused. So he made, at several points in the film, some quite dramatic U-turns, and I didn't really understand his character development. Um, I thought that was a a little bit off. Um, Overall, it was a film that I really wanted to like, but I did struggle with. However, having said that, at the end of the film... There's about a 10-minute clip where uh, Javid gives a monologue. I don't want to say too much about it, but this is where the film really starts to to, to come into its own. Where it, earlier in the film, it simplifies some of these, um, these issues about um, race. It, it, it unboxes them, and we see Javid really step out and stand up for himself. And, and 70 80% of the film... It wasn't a bad film. It's not a bad film. It's just a film that I didn't particularly enjoy. 78% of the film, I struggled with it. But the last 25, you know, 30% of that film, I I did quite enjoy. But I know, Craig, you enjoyed it a lot more than I did. Yeah, I I really thought that the film was very heartwarming, very touching. And it really did call upon the uh, Bruce Springsteen material to connect with a much wider audience. Obviously, Bruce Springsteen is from uh, America. He's from, you know... Uh, the doubt from I believe the South. he was born in the USA. Born in the USA, indeed, and, and also born to run. The <laughs> fact that his his lyrics that talk about his life um, can also affect a, a young man from Pakistani or a Pakistani heritage living in Luton really does say a lot yeah. about Bruce Springsteen's music. But then it doesn't draw too much upon those that, though, the music in, in that sense. It allows Javid to grow as a human being and I really like that. I think it faced the cultural differences between those that are of Pakistani descent living in Luton and those, uh, as you say, white um, uh, skinheads in 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 the UK going against 
uh, all the racial abuse that they they were getting, and I feel like it did. It might have simple simplified it a little bit, but it is a way of getting the story to a wider audience and educating people in a way mm. that allows you to understand what it was like in that era, in that time, during yeah. Margaret, Margaret Thatcher's reign, all of the uh, things that she was doing to to the people at that time, and all of the racial abuse as well. And you got like spot on with Javid's character and how his growth went mm. from the beginning right to the end and it redeemed itself very much so at the end um you know Luton is in the middle between London and the north two very yeah. central and uh, or I say central but cultural points in in the United Kingdom that really and it's a very divided a very divided, divided city town, as well yeah. yeah i mean it is it a city or is it's it a town? town it's a town Luton town yeah that makes sense um so it, for me, I I felt very humbled seeing this film, especially mm. as a secret screening, because you know I didn't feel like uh, as a secret screening it would work well for a majority of the audience. I feel, did feel like a lot of people didn't want to go and see this film, but that's the brilliant thing about the secret screenings is that it will bring people to the cinema that to see a film that they wouldn't necessarily mm. choose. And the people that came out of my screening were very positive about yeah. the film and, and really, really, really enjoyed it. Um, yeah. I think it's one of the best films of the year in terms of British wow. um, British made films that really do show uh, the era. It defined the era in sense that it had, it captured the elements of tape cassettes, uh, all the things that were happening in that time, even the, the, the I can't remember the guy, the weather man's name, but uh, the Mr. guy, Fish. yes, he predicted that there wouldn't be a hurricane. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah but there was the worst hurricane in British history. But yeah. the sequence that followed that was Javid taking his his writing and his poems outside, mm. almost having a breakdown. And just and throwing them into the throwing wind. Throwing yeah. them into the wind and lightning striking, Bruce Springsteen playing. I thought that was an absolutely yeah. fantastic, visually stimulating scene that really transcended what this film was about. And and what they did do there is one of, one of his neighbours, who was this sort of balding, white, quite old, quite elderly man who looked like your sort of more traditional right winger, you know, come knock on his door and say, listen here, son, I found this, I found this littered all over the street and you think he's going to have a go at him. He goes, you must continue to write, you must. And that scene was good. And visually, the one bit of this film that stood out for me, there's a moment where there's an EDL far right march through the streets of Luton and Javid and his family are dressed um, in their best to go to a Pakistani wedding. And these two groups meet uh, and there's this, you know, a, a fight breaks out and there's there's violence that breaks out. The police come down and behind all of this unfolding, there's a billboard and it says something along the lines of, and I might not be 100% right, but it says, vote conservative. It has a picture of Ma- Ma- Margaret Thatcher and it says, vote conservative for a united Britain. And you just see these two different groups of people going head to head, toe to toe. That was good. That's what I wanted. I wanted more honesty, more realism. And I felt like that showed what Luton was like in the late 90s. It didn't, you know, dull it down. It didn't sanitise it. It didn't box it into these stereotypes. So the film did have... um, it did have its strong points. You know, I, I love Bruce Springsteen. I love his music, love his new album, actually, by the way. And I have got in my notes here, bad mood, question mark. I do wonder if I went in in a slightly bad mood. I did watch it alone, so I wasn't with Craig. So maybe I'm being a bit more critical of this film than I should. 
Clearly, I'm in a minority because, like I said, 90% of the critics liked it, 90%, 92% of the audience liked it. So if you, if you believe Rotten Tomatoes, as I do, this is a film worth seeing. Yes. So, David, I'm going to ask you the question then. Yeah. Blinded by the light, is it worth it? Oh, it's a tough one. I'm I'm going to say, you're going to be pleased to know, I'm going to say yes, it is worth it. There are parts of this film that I don't like. I think it does have its problems. But overall, it's an interesting film. And if you're a Bruce Springsteen fan, it's a film that you really, really should see. Um, I didn't enjoy it as much as Craig, but that doesn't mean it's a bad film. It's not a bad film. And if you like Bruce, and if you want to see something a little bit different, then it is worth seeing in the cinema. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I do feel like it would play out very well in a in, in the cinema. Uh, so, yeah, I, for that reason, I do think it's worth seeing uh, and for all the other reasons that I've outlined in the review. Um, if you have seen this film and you'd like to let us know what you thought of it, uh, please do get in touch. You can email us on mymailisworthit at isitworthitpodcast.com. Uh, that email address, again, is mymailisworthit at isitworthitpodcast.com. And if you write in, we will potentially read out your email on the show uh, and uh, there might be the potential to win some tickets. Uh, we haven't clarified how we're going to be doing the competitions going yeah. forward, but it could be that if we read your email out, you will win some tickets. Um, we do enjoy getting yeah. your feedback. As always, this podcast is about building a community of film lovers and we want you, the listener, yes, you listening right now, to tweet us, to Facebook us, to email us, and we will happily uh, read out your reviews on the show or send us an audio clip, you know, 25, 30 seconds, a brief summary of a film you've seen and we'll happily include it in the show depending on what the content is. <laughs> well, yeah, assuming that it's uh, all above board, yes. Yes. Anyway, so that was our review of Blinded by the Light. Welcome back. Uh, I'm going to be reviewing this last film alone david has since departed us and uh, that sounds wrong he's literally just gone to do some gardening so the last film on this week's podcast is animals director sophie hyde brings us her first feature fictional movie pulling together the talents of holiday granger and alia shawcat uh, this is based on the novel of the same name by emma unsworth and it sees best friends laura and tyler both working as baristas the pair seem to feed off each other's ability to party hard. And when I say party hard, I mean sex, drugs and alcohol. But mostly they just enjoy each other's company. Uh, Tyler seems to have a view on the world that is carefree and Laura just seems to follow suit. But when Laura falls in love with Jim, a concert piano playing wizard, Laura starts to question her life and what she's been doing for the last 10 years. 10 years of supposedly writing a novel. This new friendship kickstarts an epiphany of thoughts and a change in the friend's dynamics. Let's have a listen to a clip. Isn't marriage part of the whole system we've been railing against all these years? <laughs> the stuff you do because you feel you should rather than because you actually want to? Yeah, but I do want to marry Jim. No, you don't. You've just been conditioned to feel that if you don't, your life is somehow less valuable. Let's just have a drink. Why don't you try one on? We can do a montage! Marriage, by definition, is archaic and oppressive. What about gay marriage? Is that a proposal? If I could marry you, Tyler, I would. I wouldn't marry you. I wouldn't put you through that. See, I have principles. I have principles. 
and my feminism is about blazing a new way through old traditions. I think that's a, a really good clip to, to play you there because it really does show Tyler who has this view on the world that is very much so carefree and very whimsical and very philosophical. And Laura just seems to follow suit uh, in terms of these feelings and uh, philosoph- philo- philosophies, they get that right, uh, that uh, Tyler has. Um, it's, you know... Tyler is a a very independent woman who doesn't seem to really need anyone. However, she has Laura. And now that she's had Laura for about 10 years, their friendship has grown into this amalgamation of the pair. They sort of feed off each other. I think the 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 script is is really wonderfully written. It's very funny, it's poignant, and it has a really great nuance to it. Uh, Tyler is, as I said, very poetic in nature, but believes that the art is in the moment. Uh, and we get that with the, the story that she's sort of visually telling along the way with the words that she is saying. Uh, and it's done very well, very subtle, um, as to not make the viewer think that they're watching a movie. You sort of believe that what they're acting is actually... Not acting. It's their real chemistry that's coming across. They truly are friends. I think the cinematography uh, was really well done. Uh, Most of the things that happen unfold in a darkened environment. Um, And we have this sort of orange hue that was sort of placed throughout the film. Um, And it was really nice uh, the way that sort of brought the film together. The film is very gritty, it's destructive, and it is somewhat a coming-of-age film for those that are sort of in their 30s or mid-30s, finally realising that there is a bit more to life, sort of getting back on track to sort of where they wanted to be with their dreams and their hopes. Tyler's character is that person that doesn't really have that many dreams and aspirations and sort of sees herself as just being this continued party-goer person, whereas Laura realises there's a bit more to life than this. There is love, there is a home, there are children to be had that that she may want in the future. Um, But really and truly, she doesn't really know what she wants. And I think a lot of people feel exactly the same. Uh, I think it's, it's apparent that, you know, most people in this sort of day and age, in their 30s, don't really know what they want. You know, they may have gone to university or done A-level degrees uh, thinking that they may have wanted to go on and study or become, uh, you know, whatever it is that you've done in your degree to be that person. And actually, that sudden realisation that actually, I don't enjoy this, I don't like it, Um, what do I really want from life? sort of happens it's a a real epiphany sort of moment i feel like the film was slightly let down only a tiny bit by these continued incessant shots of animals uh, just to reinforce that metaphor that they're acting like animals at time and when i say they're acting like animals i mean is as i said in the uh, introduction sex drugs alcohol and continued partying uh, for a lot of the fi- the film, there's just no care uh, or attention to what they are getting up to. Um, so in regards to whether I thought this film was worth seeing in the cinema, I'm going to say yes, it was worth seeing in the cinema. It was just unfortunate that it didn't get such a massively wide release. Now, however, it was produced by Picture House and Picture House are owned by the same people as Cineworld and therefore I feel like that 
Picture House managed to distribute this out to uh, quite a few Cineworlds as well to get it that bit of a wider release because on the back of that fact that they are owned by the same company. Um, and I think it's good that films are able to do that. And, uh, you know, if you did go and catch it, I would really love to hear what you thought about the film. Um, as I've, we've probably said continuously throughout this episode, do email us. You can email us on my mail is worth it at isitworthitpodcast.com or you can hit us up on social media. Uh, the various social medias will be read out in the outro uh, so you will know where to find us and you can send us messages on there if you want to. Uh, and as we've said before, you can win yourself some tickets if you email in. We're going to work out how the competitions are going to work going forward in the next few weeks. Uh, we have this wonderful team on board who are going to help us establish everything, how we're going to be doing it, all the graphics, all of the social media. Um, and even the Patreon account as well. We're going to be starting to really push the podcast in a, a wonderful new direction uh, and hopefully make this a really great podcast to listen to and really build a great community of people. Anyway, that was uh, my review of Animals uh, and that was the last review. Thank you very much for listening to Season 3, Week 33 of the Film Review Podcast. And as we said in the introduction, please don't forget that we'll be setting up a Patreon page very, very soon. Uh, this will enable you guys to make a financial donation to the podcast of any amount, uh, and you'll get some uh, nice treats in return. And then this will enable us to continue making the podcast that you love listening to. That's absolutely right, Craig. And as mentioned earlier, a massive welcome to all the new guys and girls who are now part of the ever-growing Is It Worth It podcasting team. Please do keep your eyes peeled for our new look social media experience and our new look artwork, which we hope to have out with you in the coming weeks. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Film Is Worth It. Find us on Instagram at Is It Worth It Podcast and on Facebook by searching for Is It Worth It, the film review podcast. You can also email the show with all of your thoughts and film reviews and our email address is mymailisworthit at isitworthitpodcast.com. That's mymailisworthit at isitworthitpodcast.com. Dot com. That's correct. Uh, coming up on week 34 of the podcast, we have reviews of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, Angel Has Fallen, Dora the Lost City of Gold, The Good Boys and Cruel. So, until next week, from a very, very hot studio, 34.9 degrees in here, the shirt is completely off. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, good boo, good boo, tatty bye. Cheerio. Yeah,